So praise God that he uses all things for good. He used the birth of my first child, Madison, to really draw me to himself and that uh, the responsibility of being a parent, and a lot of you guys know that, is a heavy one. And for me, that is one of the parts that really helped me come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and so I praise God for that. Well, I was at the park yesterday, and I was with Ella, and she was doing all her swings and slide stuff, and a mom was talking to me, and she goes, oh, is that your only child? And I said, well, no, I got a, I got a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old tomorrow. And she's like, whoa, <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. And she goes, that's kind of funny, because I, I was, uh, as a child development major in college, and you know, they said that the two stages of independence for a child are, are two and 13. And so God has a sense of humor there. He's got me dealing with two sets of independence, and we're seeing it for sure in the two-year-old in magnified ways. And uh, luckily the 13-year-old has been all right, but she just turned 13 today. So watch out, look out, pray for me. It's going to be rough. Well, I told stories about my other two children the last two weeks, and so Maddie's feeling a little left out, so you tell one of my favorite memories of Maddie today. Um, when she was around four years old, we got to, we went to California with some friends of ours, and her best buddy is named Maddie also, her name's Maddie Ott, and so little Maddie Ott and Maddie Joe were talking on the plane ride to California, and Maddie Ott had never seen the ocean, and Maddie Joe had been one time before, and so she's trying to explain to Maddie Ott in four-year-old terminology what the ocean was like, and she, she said to her, she goes, well, well Maddie Ott, the, the ocean is like a swimming pool, a big swimming pool without walls. And so my, my dad always tells that story, that uh, the ocean is a swimming pool without walls. So that's one of my favorite memories of Maddie. Well, today we're going to talk, continue our discussion and talk about stewardship and giving and money. And um, Dan Hardy uh, gave me some uh, uh, a hand, a, a thing about a consumption quotient in America and what and how much of a consumers we are in America. So I'll put those slides up there if you would. And we're going to take a little test to see just a couple of these questions to see what. You guys know about our consumption in America, what our consumption quotient is. So the first question is this, which of the following is comparable to the size of a typical three-car garage? Would it be A, a basketball court, B, a McDonald's restaurant, C, an RV, or D, the average home in the 1950s? What do you guys think? D. All right, let's see what the answer is. Survey says D. You guys are right, yeah. The average home in the 1950s was around 900 square feet. That's kind of shocking. You think about the size of our homes nowadays, that we're all about bigger is better, bigger cars, bigger homes that we live in. Uh, the next question is, the percentage of Americans calling themselves very happy reached its highest point in what year? 1957, 1967, 1977, or 1987? What do you guys think? 57, yes. 57 was the year that the people counted their peak of being the most happy. And if you probably keep going back, it just get higher and higher, I'm sure. Um, the next question, in the industrialized, in the industrialized world, where, where is the U.S. ranked in terms of its economic equality between the rich and the poor? That is, first being the most economically equal. 
So do you think we're first, fifth, twelfth, or twenty-second? What do you guys think? A little whispering on her. Well, let's see. Where are we? We are dead last. 22nd in the industrialized nations. We are last. We have the largest gap between the rich and the poor is in the United States. All right, last one. See how you guys do. Last one here. Of the Americans who voluntarily cut back their consumption, what percentage said that they are happier as a result? Cut back their consumption. Who... How many people said they're happier? Was it 29%, 42%, 67%, or 86%? 86, is that it? Yes, 86% people. They cut back. 86% of the people said that they were happier because they cut back. So consumption in America, it's, it's growing. The greed is growing. We consume more, bigger houses, bigger cars, more stuff. You continue to see storage units pop up everywhere. We have to have more places to store our stuff. We have to have more things. And so about 10 years ago, Sue and I were in a situation where we had to determine our daycare provider was was done and she wanted to move on. So we had to determine whether Sue would continue to work or she would or she would come back and, and stay at home. And so we prayerfully considered that, and we decided to, that Sue would stay home and that we would cut back, cut back our expenses instead of saying, well, you know what, this is how much we have to live on, so my, Sue just has to work in order for us to keep up our standard of living. Well, we went before the Lord and, and determined that we can live on less and we felt it was important for Sue to cut back. And so we've gone through struggles with that for sure. And there's times when things are tight and, and Sue goes, man, I should just really go back and work. And I just say, well, you know, we got to pray about this. And how, how are there ways we can cut back more? And just recently, uh, we went to uh, buy, what is it, buy monthly paychecks at, at the city of Loveland instead of bi-weekly. So my paycheck shrunk a little. And as you guys all know, health insurance got more expensive. So my paychecks are getting a little smaller. And so we start freaking out a little and, and went before the Lord again. Well, we should sue work again. And well, we determined to cut back again and go on total uh, to a cash, total cash budget. And God's been good these last couple months that we've been able to stay on this budget. And so I think that's contrary, though, to the American way of life. The American way of life is saying, well, gosh, our expenses are this. Just make more money to make to catch up with all those things. And it's not to cut back. Well, today we're. Last week we talked about this church in Macedonia, this church that was very poor. They were called rock-bottom destitute, in fact. They were so poor. And they were going through some severe trials. They were going through difficulties, persecution in their life. And yet, as a a production of that, they didn't whine and complain about their situation. No, they had what? They had abundant joy. They had joy because they knew the risen Lord. And as an outpouring of that, they were generous givers. And so Paul used them as an example to the church in Corinth. Look at these guys who are poor, going through trials, and yet they were generous givers. These people knew the grace of God. They had experienced that tremendous forgiveness that comes to knowing the Lord. And they felt the blessings of the gifts of God's Spirit were poured upon them. And so as an outpouring of that, they had to give back. They wanted to give back. To God, what He so had generously given to them. 
We saw in last week's passage that the Macedonians gave voluntarily and spontaneously. I mean, Paul didn't even ask them to give to the saints in Jerusalem. They gave. They gave to the church in Jerusalem. And they also gave sacrificially. They gave on their ability and beyond their ability. They gave regardless of the circumstances and they gave with enthusiasm. And they gave most importantly because they know what Christ did for them. And last week we ended on verse 9. And this is an extremely rich passage. Verse 9 in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians has deep meaning and substance. And this verse really summarizes all the other verses in the Bible in regards to giving and our finances. And it sets Christ really as the example. It signifies that our finances and our spiritual life should not be separated. They should be inseparable. Verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the Son of God, took on the wrath of the Father, the sins of the world. He took on hell on earth on the cross for us. Eternal poverty. Why did he do this? It was so we could become rich. So that we could experience all the spiritual blessings from knowing him. We could experience intimacy with our creator and our everlasting life that he gives those that follow him. So our passage today, now Paul turns his attention from the Macedonians and he turns it towards the Corinthians. So if you would, turn with me into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to do quite a few verses today. We're going to look at verses 10 through 24. Verses 10 through 24. So if you didn't bring a Bible, there's some black ones scattered about. I think it's on page 143 of the Black Bible. And we'll also have it up on the screen so that you can um, read along silently while I read out aloud. So look, starting in verse 10, it says, And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to give the desire to do so, no, to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Verse 16. I thank God who... Put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed welcomed your appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he has chosen by the churches to accomplish, to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show your eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, 
not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. All right, verse 22. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and has great com- is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for your pride in you, so that the churches may see it. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, this is a a lot. These are a lot of verses here today. And so, um, by your grace and by your strength, Lord, we just uh, we just offer them to you. If we can get through all of them today, then we just we'll, we'll put that at your feet and uh, rely on you to to speak, Lord. I pray that you would edit and you would uh, dissect your word and you'd speak through me, and that um, we could just speak into our hearts about giving and what that looks like in our relationship to you. And Lord, that your Spirit would reign supreme, that you would be glorified as you so rightly deserve that you would put on be put on display that through our giving our giving would be an act of worship to you that we would see it as a privilege to give back so many of all the amazing tremendous things you've given to us a debt we could never repay so lord uh i pray that you would speak to everyone here and that um we could just uh enter into worship to you through this time in your word in your name amen all right, I have some handouts at the back to help you follow along with the message today. And um, I see that this is the wrong time. Oh, no, it's the right time. Oh, good, thank you. Someone changed it. Okay, so I'm going to try to stay on track today. And if I get a little too long, someone just start giving me the cut. And uh, we'll, we'll cut it off there and we'll leave the rest for Chris. And he's not here, he's upstairs, so we'll tell him later that he gets to finish it off. Well, today we're going to look at hopefully three aspects of giving. The first one is that we should be giving from a willing heart, from willingness to give. And then the next one is that our giving is really a matter of faith, that our faith and our finances are inseparable. And then lastly, that our giving needs to be done with wisdom. So when I talk about giving, I didn't really kind of clarify this last week, but I want to clarify that. The giving is not just to Windsor Community Church that you can give to anything that your hearts desire, that the Lord puts on your heart, to charities, to friends. That giving is, giving is to all things. It's giving of your own resources to other people. It's giving your own finances to other people. So we believe that giving, though, to the local church is probably the, the number one priority. That giving to the local churches, as we see in Scripture, is probably priority number one. And so just place that before you that... Your giving, or some people call it tithing, is is to, to be to the local church. And so if there's people in need in this body, we have what's called a helping hand fund. And so those needs are usually brought before the pastors or deacons, and, and uh, we go to this helping hand fund to provide for these people. And we've had just a... Uh, just a great opportunities to do this many, many times over the years to give to those who are in need. You know, and, and one thing is we should never feel coerced or forced to give. 
I really, you know, one of the things that, that gets me is when I go to these big Christian events and they always put on the screen all these pictures, these poor children and starving and all that, and, and they, they really touch your heart. And, but a lot of times I just feel forced or coerced to give. And, and that's really not what God wants us to do. As we see in these first two verses that giving really should be from a willingness, a willingness from a heart. We should give voluntarily like the, the Macedonians gave spontaneously and voluntarily that we see in the verses last week that they, they were begging to give. They were urging Paul and Titus for the privilege to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And really that's the title of the message today is the privilege of giving. It is a privilege for us to give back to God. What he so amazingly has blessed us with. That we can give back just a portion of that. It is a privilege as followers of Jesus to give back to the living God. Now we see from verse 10 that Paul was looking for a desire to give. He was looking for that desire from the Corinthians. And Paul is saying it is to their advantage. He's saying, Corinthians, it is to your advantage to give. That if you give, you will experience the blessings of giving. And in chapter 9, Chris will talk about this. Verse 6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. So there is that balance that when you give, you will be given back to. Later on in this passage, we see that the Corinthians are convinced of this truth, and they do give. They give a generous gift or a liberal gift, as the NIV translated. And it's capable, in verse nine or verse 1 of chapter 9, it's capable of fully supplying the needs of the saints. So this is a very generous gift that they were given. Last week I talked about Sue and how she is a giver. And we've learned tremendously from that. You know, I've definitely learned tremendously from that. My, my dad uh, was raised by a very frugal dad. In fact, his friends joked about it that he, he's the only one they know that ever made change out of the offering plate. So that was kind of my example in life. Not much of a giver, but he's a, he's a great man, just, just very tight with his money. And so I was very tight with my money. You know, my wife, on the other hand, she just wants to give it all away, and she's always giving. And so uh, we experienced that in our life. You know, I just got the opportunity to give um, some our crib to the Thomases and some other stuff for the babies and you know, get to share with them how really this, none of this is ours anyway, that people had given us all this stuff. When we had Ella Grace, people just gave us all this stuff. They just poured all this stuff in us. And so we got all these baby goods. And so, you know, we just want to give it back away. And we've just experienced in our life that we cannot outgive God. That we keep giving stuff and keep giving stuff and stuff keeps coming in. And, and so it's like, geez, what's going on here? But it's such an exciting thing to be a part of. And I've just kind of got caught up in the wave from my wife's giving and finally succumbed to my frugal ways, even though she will say maybe a little different <laughs> there sometimes. Uh, so let's look back at verse 10. Verse 10, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they, all, they already gave a year before. And they were really the first church to give to this, this fundraising project for these, these saints in Jerusalem. But something happened, as we know, that Paul left the church. And when they left, these false apostles, they came in and they took over. And they are probably very, very greedy people. And they saw that the church was giving to these people in, in Jerusalem. And I'm sure these false apostles were like, what are you doing that for? You should be giving to the, us, to this church, to us here. And so they probably listened to these false apostles and they stopped giving to the church in Jerusalem. 
So now he urges them to finish this work by their ability and in portion to what they have. So Paul does not want the Corinthians to give beyond their means like the Macedonians. He says he wants them to give by their ability, by what they have. Um, last week I talked about tithing a little bit. And uh, that tithing is really an Old Testament um, is really an Old Testament practice, and that in the New Testament we aren't we aren't tied to tithing. Well, this week I had the opportunity to read big portions of this book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Has anyone read this book? If not, this is Dan Hardy's copy, and so you guys can just take it afterwards. No, if you want to ask Dan, I'm sure he'd be willing to let you borrow it. Uh, Dan gave it to me this week, and I had the opportunity to read some good sections on this. And his, Randy's sec, um, the section on tithing in here is really was convicting to me that, that, yeah, tithing is an Old Testament principle, but in the New Testament church, knowing Jesus Christ, that should probably be our minimum. That should probably be where we start off is at 10%. He talks about stories here about people giving, you know, 25, 50, 90% of their income that they give back and they saw the blessings from those so if you're interested in that I encourage you guys to pick up a copy of this or we have one of them here and come up later and can take a look at that so regardless of how much you give God really cares more about the intentions of our heart than really the amounts and I talked about that some last week that God really sees the heart and so if, you, if you're giving, and, and as an example, you're about to write out your, the check for giving, and you're writing it out, and, and uh, say you're going to write it for $100, and somehow you got distracted, and your kids are doing stuff, and you forgot what you're doing, and yeah, accidentally put another zero on there and put it in the box. Um, and then you find out in your statement, you're like, oh, I didn't give 1000 I thought I gave 100 And so... So the problem with that is you, you might be saying, well, oh, I just won't give for another uh, you know, nine months and then I'll catch up, right? But the problem is that God sees the intentions of your heart. Your intention was to give 100, though you gave 1,000. He knows it was still 100. And so as, as far as God's concerned, the, the amount is the 100. That's what the intentions of your heart were. There was another story about someone who gave, and it's in Luke chapter 21. You can turn to Luke chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. It's a story of the poor widow. And in verse 1, it says, As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow put in two very small coins. Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, this, this poor widow who put in more than all the others. All these people, their gifts were out of their wealth. But she gave out of her poverty. She put in all she had to live on. She had nothing to live on. Randy Alcorn says that giving isn't a luxury of the rich. It's a privilege of the poor. This poor widow gave out of her poverty. She probably didn't even have enough for her next meal. And yet she gave And you ask yourself, why would she give not even knowing where her next meal came from? Why would she do that? Well, she understood that all she had was God's. It wasn't hers. And she understood that God was all-sufficient and he will provide for every one of her needs. She gave sacrificially beyond her ability and she gave out of faith, 
And that's really the next point is giving should be a matter of faith. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality, and at the present time your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, who has gathered much did not have too much, and who has gathered little did not have too little. So, is Paul advocating communism here? Huh? Is he... Is he advocating communism? Well, probably not in a political sense, but maybe in, in an ideological sense that we as believers need to be burdened for those who are in need. When we see a need, we would, should give generously to those needs. Some of the Corinthians may have been reluctant to give because of favoritism. We know that these false apostles probably came in and, and possibly used the argument that, you know, why is Paul given to this this church in Jerusalem. Well, it's because he's a Jew. That's why. He, he just wants to help the Jews. He doesn't want to help us out. So they were, they were attacking him on this point. But we see here that Paul didn't want to give for that. He, he, he didn't want to give them so that the Corinthians would be hard-pressed or they would be in affliction. And he didn't really want to give to provide ease for the church in Jerusalem. Why did he want them to give? What's the reason he wanted him to give for? Equality. Equality. See, Paul did not suggest, though, that these, the rich people would become poor and that the people that had money or barely on the bubble should go in debt for those who were poor. No, he's just suggesting that there be equality and that, that probably he saw the material wealth that was happening in, in Europe and all the money they had there, and in contrast to the, the situation in Jerusalem, and he saw, man, God can really use this. He can use these, these, the, the material wealth that the Gentiles have to bless the Jews. And so that would be a blessing, and he could see some equality and see the church grow and helping out the other side because there's such a divide between the Gentiles and the Jews, and what a way to bring unity in the church. And so maybe vice versa, that could have also happened, that at some point the Jews had given back to those Gentiles in some ways later on. So he's seeing that as equality. Now next he, he, he applies something that's from the Old Testament, from the Israelites in, in the wilderness. And this is from um, Exodus chapter 16. So verse, verse 15 is basically when it says, as it is written, it's a direct quote out of Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus, we know what happens in the wilderness, that the whole nation of Israel right, is out in the wilderness and they ain't got nothing to eat. So what do they start doing? They start whining and complaining and grumbling. We don't have anything to eat. And we're so hungry. <sighs> so what does God do? He provides bread from heaven. It's called manna. And he provides it. But he does it as a test. Right? He's going to test the Israelites. So how does he test them? Well, he gives them this manna, this bread from heaven, each day. So each day this manna comes down and they go out and they gather up this manna. And you know, I'm sure the first couple days they go out there and they gather up and, and the people that can gather tons and people that can't gather just as much as they can. And then what happens when they gather too much and they can't eat it all? What happened to this manna? It went bad, right? You couldn't save it for the next day. And so the principle was that you should, you should give and you should collect as much as you can, but 
you can only collect as much as you eat. And, and out of your plenty, you should give to those who aren't as capable as collecting as much. Because guess what, guys? It ain't good anyway if you, you keep it hoarded around. So the, the principle here in, in Exodus and that, that Paul is reaffirming here in, in verse 15 is that if you can gather a lot, if you're physically capable and you can go out there and you can gather all this manna, well, give to those that aren't as physically capable, that are in need. Give to those and spread the wealth around. Make there be equality. And so that's the principle that Paul is trying to, to convey here to the Corinthians. Well, the same is true for us today. You know, if we have a great job and, or we have a big inheritance or we're very wealthy and we make a lot of money, and yet we see our brother and sister in Christ who's in need and we don't help them, then that's not following this principle. That we should be burdened for those that are in need. That we should give out of our wealth to those that, that need. Now we know the Bible does not advocate giving to those who are unwilling to work. In fact, in Second Thessalonians, Paul talks about that. He says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Yet he, the Bible does advocate for those who are materially wealthy to give. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what? That is truly life. So does the Bible advocate communism? I'd submit to you, that the Bible advocates something more like communism or socialism than it does capitalism or the free market. And not in the political sense, not in the secular sense, I would say, but in the idealistic sense. I mean, I know that communism, and you know, you think of communism as the, the godless state and socialism as a governmental system. But I, as we look at those statistics, there's one I didn't bring up, but... In, in the world today, there are 360 individuals. The wealth of 360 very wealthy people is more than half of the world. 2.5 billion people. So 360 people have more wealth than 2.5 billion people. Isn't that a ginormous gap? Do you call that equality? I don't think so. That's called free market economy. That is called greed. And that's what the free market economy has done. It's, it's given greed the precedence. It's said, make more and more and more. And that gap is growing farther and farther. So for many of you that are strong capitalists, you're probably going, <clears throat> getting a little bothered by that. But I, as far as I can read it, that's what... The Bible advocates more of an equality system. And of course, we're talking about the church. We're talking about believers, that believers will have a heart that out of their wealth they should give to others. And we're no better example of that, of course, than the, the, the New Testament church in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in, con- in common, selling their possessions and goods that they gave to anyone who had need. There was a sense of equality there that who those who had much 
gave to those who had need so that there was really no one that found themselves as more important than the other. I think in American society, we have got it backwards. We hoard our stuff up. We get larger and bigger houses and cars, and yet our giving and our gap between the rich and the poor grows greater and greater. And I'm afraid it's gotten into our churches. And we look at churches that are bigger that have more members, that have more programs, that do more things, that get on TV. We look at them as more important than those that are smaller, that don't do as many stuff, that maybe even are struggling financially. We'll look at them as, well, oh, they're probably just, God's not blessing that church. That shouldn't be the way we look at it. We should look at those churches, if they're Bible-believing churches, if they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are hurting and they are in need, those churches that have more in wealth should give to those that don't have. There should be equality. We should have a heart to give. Now, giving is a matter of faith, as I said before. We obey God and believe that He will meet our needs and help meet the needs of others, just like the poor widow. So as the Israelites gathered manna each day, they, they would depend on God every day for their daily bread. That's what we should do. Depend on God each day for our daily bread. We must not waste or squander what God has given. Neither must we hoard it up. All right, now savings is good. Saving our money is good. It's a good practice. Yet hoarding is bad. The Israelites sacrifice. For the Israelites, they saved, right? They got to save once a week. They got to save on Friday for the Sabbath because there's no bread on the Sabbath and there's no work on the Sabbath. So God would miraculously make this manna last through the Sabbath for one day. But the next day, if they save for two days, it could go bad again. So God, I think he does advocate saving just enough to get us by, to trust in him with that. Um, for further, if you want to look at that, there's James chapter 5. It's in your handout. You can look over that and maybe community group study or uh, on study on your own about hoarding up our money. Um, many people say that they will give their inheritance to the church after they die. But why not now? Why not ex- enjoy the blessings of giving now? Why wait till you're dead and you don't even get to enjoy the blessings of giving? A good friend of mine, um, his father was a very well-respected man. He was a university professor, and he worked hard all his life, and my friend said he never got to spend much time with his father. And his father would always tell him, well, you know, son, I'm, I'm working for my retirement, and, and I'm putting it away, and we're going to have a great time when I retire, and I'll have plenty of time, and I'll have plenty of money. Well, he retired several years back. And less than six months after he retired, he died of a sudden heart attack. Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So finally, giving should be done with wisdom. It should be done carefully and prayerfully with the discernment of God's Spirit. And that's verses 16 through 24. I'll go through these quickly. So giving should not be foolishness. As as a church, we need to have qualified people handling the money. And verses 16 through 24 really talk about five qualifications for those who handle church finances. 
The first one is a desire to serve, a desire to serve. We see in verse 16, it says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed your appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. He has really, Titus has this desire or he has this enthusiasm to serve in Paul's fundraising project for these saints in Jerusalem. He wants to help out. I know many times people put, uh, they put people on financial advisory committees kind of begrudgingly. Like, well, I, yeah, I guess. It's kind of a boring committee. I guess I'll, that's the only thing I can do. I guess that's what I'll do, financial advisory committee. Well, not at Windsor. We are thankful to have people that are enthusiastic, that are, are willing and have a desire to be a part of that. We are blessed to bring Erin um, Livingstone on just recently. And she's been a tremendous help and just a desire to be a part of that work and to use her giftedness in that way. And so we thank God for her. The next in verse 18 is that to be a qualification to handle church finances, you must have a heart for the lost. See, we see in verse 18, they mention this so-called brother. Um, I worked with a guy, we called him the brother. And he'd go, what's up, brother? He was kind of a bizarre guy, but he, he was a brother. He was a follower of Christ, so we called each other brother. And you probably, when I first became a believer, I saw people calling each other brother. How's it going, brother? Brother. And you hear that a lot. But we are, as followers of Christ, we, the guys, we call each other brothers. As ladies, we call each other sisters. We are family we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So this guy was called the brother. That's We don't know who he is exactly. They should call him the brother. And so there's speculation I've read in some commentaries. They think he was probably Luke or Barnabas or Tychus or Trophas. But no matter what, he, this was a well-respected man. And we see also that he was basically like a, a famous evangelist too. His name was known and he's well known. He's probably like the Billy Graham of the day, if you will. This man was not chosen really because he was a wealthy businessman. But he was really chosen because of his spiritual maturity, his godly character, and most of all because of his heart for the lost. He had a burden for the lost. See, churches typically will fill their financial advisory committees with a bunch of wealthy, older business people. That's what they do. You look at most of them. But what they really need to do is is put someone on there that's someone kind of a young, crazed person that just loves uh, evangelism, that just has a heart for the losses, that's all about, let's go, man, let's just go save the world. I don't care how much it costs. Let's have a huge outreach event. Let's go on missions trip. Let's go on ski trips. I just want to save people. I don't care how much it costs. What a great tension that would be. So you got the frugal folks that are money conscious and about God's money. And then you got this crazed maniac over here that just wants to see the world saved for Jesus Christ. And so by the unity of the Spirit, somehow God would bring that together to serve and further God's kingdom. I think that would be a great thing. What do you guys think? Um, here's some statistics from Frontier Missions. Put that up on the board there. Then it's next slide. These are kind of some interesting statistics from Frontier Missions. This is out of um, John Piper's book on Desiring God. The, goal, the global church member finances in U.S. dollars. The total global church membership's annual income. So this is all believers throughout all the world. How much that money all believers in all the world make? $12 trillion every year. They make $12 trillion every year. 
So of this $12 trillion, only $113 billion is given to the church, given to Christian causes. So it's less than 2% of their income of the total global church. And of this less than 2%, this $213 billion, only $11 billion or $11.4 billion goes to foreign missions, goes to giving into foreign missions. And then that goes down and down from there for even those that are unreached people groups. Well, here at Windsor Community Church, missions are important to us. And so we've gone up and up with our giving into missions. And right now our budget to missions and church planting and to building this network that God has so graciously gave us in in the front range of Colorado, we give 17% of our budget into missions. And we thank God that we're able to give that. We give it off the top, first priority. Now the next qualification that someone should have to handle church finances is a desire to glorify God. We see in verse 19 that this brother was appointed by the churches. He was not just a crony of Paul and Titus. He was not just in the good old boys club, but he was appointed by all these other churches. So all these other churches knew of this guy, and they were like, yeah, this is the guy to do it. We trust this guy, and I think he should be the one to be able to do it. So Paul really provided some accountability. Paul and Titus had some accountability in this group to to go against any false accusations of mishandling this collection. This unnamed brother really acts as kind of an objective kind of auditor, if you will, to ensure the money was handled properly. Notice from this verse that the collection was being administered by Paul and his companions, and it was for the glory of the Lord himself. So first and foremost, we must glorify God. Our finances are a major part of that. We must glorify God with our finances. I said repeatedly that our finances and our faith are inseparable. You know, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Just take a look at someone's checkbook to know where their heart is, what they give to. Look at their credit card statements. So best way for the church to glorify God is to use our money wisely and invest it in spiritual things and the furthering of the kingdom, the furthering of the gospel. And qualification number four is that they should have a reputation for honesty. Verses 20 through 22, we see that it was important for Paul to be above reproach or to be above board, not only in the sight of God, but it says in the sight of men, that Paul welcomed the involvement of the other churches and, and he did not want any false accusations against him with this handling of the collection. He, he went to such great lengths that he even pointed another brother, it says. So they appointed someone else to go along with him on the journey. So he described as, he's this, this other brother is described as one whom... We have often tested, we have often tested and found diligent in many matters. So notice the, the uh, emphasis here on diligence. They, they brought him along, you know, they had this crazed, probably maniac evangelism guy, but he had spiritual maturity. So they provide this other guy that they tested. So they knew this person, they tested him probably financially to see if he was, he was faithful and little. Right? That's what God's word said. If you're faithful and little, I will give you much. And so this man was probably faithful and little. And so they gave him this new role to go alongside as another added kind of protection, as another added layer of accountability. And we see that he had diligence. He was careful and persistent in his work and his effort. And finally, the last qualification is that 
someone should have for church finances is they should have a cooperative spirit. Paul finishes this chapter by summarizing his financial advisory committee and saying that Titus, Titus is his partner and fellow worker. And that the brethren, or these two unnamed brothers, are messengers. They're messengers of the church. And this is really the only mention of this term in the New Testament, messengers of the church. But this really designates that they are the official authorized representatives of all these churches. So all these churches have given to this need, to this fundraising project, and they've given kind of the official stamp in a, on these two men to be the official messengers or representatives from these churches for this collection to the church in Jerusalem. Now, most importantly, it says that these three men, Titus and the two unnamed brothers, are called a glory to Christ. It says they're called a glory to Christ. So really it comes back to that, to glory, to honoring God with our finances, that we must honor God and glorify Him and put Him on display with our finances. Imagine with, would you with me this, this horrific scenario. Imagine that uh, your child is kidnapped. And the kidnapper is saying that he will return your child if you'll just pay a ransom. And so in your heart you're saying, how much would you give? Would you give $100,000? Would you give a million dollars? Would you give $10 million? Now think of this situation. You've, you've spent your whole life living for yourself. You've committed heinous crimes and you're paying back for the consequences of your sin by spending time in jail. And your sentencing is crucifixion. And all of a sudden, a man comes along. And because of this mutinous trial by a group, a mob of people, you, a convicted criminal, are set free. And this man who did no crime, who is absolutely innocent, takes on your punishment. And he not only takes on your punishment, he takes on everybody's crime. He takes on all the sins of the world upon himself. There was a man that that happened to him. His name was Barabbas. Barabbas was the man who committed the crimes, who was doing the time, who was supposed to go to the cross to be crucified. Yet on Good Friday, the mob yelled, don't kill Barabbas, set him free. Crucify Jesus. Crucify Jesus. I'm sure Barabbas was relieved. He, he got relieved of this of all his crimes, he, he got set free. He's free and he gets to walk. And yet I'm sure he walked from a distance and his heart sank as he thought, this man who did no crime was taking on my sentence that I deserve. I'm sure his heart grew heavier and heavier. How much would you pay for that? I think no amount is, is too much. 
We could, we can never repay that debt. The debt is too great. His sacrifice is of infinite worth. So we have to ask ourselves, can we give back a portion of our finances to furthering the kingdom for a debt we can never repay? For something that is given to us that's of infinite worth, and yet we give so little. So ask yourself, what benefits or blessings do you receive when you give? When have you experienced the joy of giving by grace through faith? The joy of faith giving. In what ways has God's word convicted your heart and encouraged you in new ways in regards to your giving? About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to um, go to a fundraising event. And it was, um, <clears throat> it, was pretty, it was pretty cool for me. I got to go to something I couldn't afford to do. We had some friends that gave us tickets. And John Elway was going to be at this event. And so I was excited to meet my childhood dream, John Elway. You know, he's my hero. And he was there, and so was Dan Marino and Jim McMahon and some other, you know, Terrell Davis, some other famous football players were there. And so we got to go, and we got to actually meet him and go through the line. I got to shake all their hands. And and for some reason, this was just a couple years after becoming a believer, and for some reason this was sticking in my mind. And and this this first was coming on my mind of what to say to John Elway. I mean, what am I going to say? This is John Elway. He's amazing. And so we're going through the line, and I get to John Elway, and I'm kind of nervous. And I stand up and get to meet him. Hey, John, how's it going? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. And and all of a sudden, this came out of my mouth. I said, "Um, I grabbed his hand. I said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) And so he looked at me like, What? Is this guy? And so people were coming, and they kind of pushed me, pushed me away. But you know, as I came afterwards, and I thought about that, what would it profit? I mean, John Elway, he had everything. He still does, basically. He has all the fame. I mean, if you want to be elected governor of Colorado, he'd probably be elected. There's probably no one more famous in Colorado than John Elway. He has millions, probably billions of dollars with his car dealerships and all the wealth that he had. He, in all aspects, has gained probably everything you can from the world. But I ask you, what would it profit us if we were to gain the whole world and forfeit our soul? You may be here today, and that's the first time you've heard about Jesus and and the amount of sacrifice that he's given for you. And so we're going to go to a time of communion here. So ask yourself, have, have, you, have you given your life to him? Maybe you've given your life to all the pursuits of the world. Maybe you've tasted all the pleasures the world has to offer, and they've come up empty. So you're here today by no mistake. God is calling you. He's calling you to come to him. I met with a young man yesterday that has been pursuing the world in a big way, and yet he has tasted the sourness of the pleasures of the world. He is facing the consequences that sin brings. If you're in that same place today, Jesus is asking you to come, to come to him, saying, my burden 
is light. My yoke is easy. Come to me and I will take that up for you. So if you're here today and you don't know him, come to him. Put your faith in him who sacrificed it all, who put it all on the cross and and bore the sins of the world. He bore your sins that you committed today, the ones you committed yesterday, the ones you'll commit the rest of your life. He paid the sacrifice for your sins. So he's saying, come. As we come to the Lord's table, we come in remembrance of what he has done for us. You know, today is Palm Sunday, and and that's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem where the mob was just praising him, Hosanna, and laying palm leaves before him that he was the king to rescue Jerusalem. And yet five short days later, they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. So we're here to remember that day, that gruesome, horrific day that Jesus, the Son of God, took on the sins of the world, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So we come to remember the tremendous sacrifice that he did, that the Father had to turn his back on the Son as he bore the wrath of God upon himself as a payment for our sin. That's what we're here today to remember, that his body was pierced for our transgressions. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness. So Jesus had to die. He had to bear a gruesome, horrific death. His blood had to be shed for there to be forgiveness of sins. So I want you guys to just take a little bit of time to, uh, to think about his amazing sacrifice that he did to personalize what he did. And God's word said they were not to come to this table in an unworthy manner, but to we are to clear ourselves with, with regards to any relationships that are strained in our life. If there is unforgiven sin between maybe you and your spouse or your child, we're to make that right before we come to the table. If there's unconfessed sin in your heart between you and God, it's now it's time to confess that. Now it's time to do business with God. So we're going to do a little business with God. And when you're done doing business with God, come up here and take the elements and bring them back to your seat. And and we'll partake in communion together.